Yeah, it was very, very random. Like a lot of things in my life have been very random. But that's also why I like to tell people when they're pursuing goals, just don't pursue it with blinders on. Because you could be missing out on another opportunity that could be even more exciting or take your life in a different direction or whatever. But sometimes people are sometimes so focused that they sometimes miss out on other things that may take their life in a whole new wonderful direction. Welcome to the Business of Doing Business. I'm your host, Dwayne Carey. With 35 years in business and close to 30 ventures across 12 industries, I've seen a lot. Amid the celebrity allure of entrepreneurship, many exceptional entrepreneurs remain shadowed. Here, I team up with these hidden talents to unveil their challenges and successes. Dive in with me to unearth entrepreneurial gems, learn from our experiences, and get educated. Hey, welcome back to part two with Heather Moise. What a fantastic conversation. If you missed part one, you'll have to go back and catch that and then revisit us here again for the part two. I, we haven't talked about, like we really haven't, you've mentioned rugby. I think this is a big piece. I'm pretty sure I have this right, that you were the first female to be inducted into the Rugby Hall of Fame. I was the first Canadian female. Canadian female. Yeah, okay. I was the second Canadian ever. And first Canadian female. And actually, I still am the only Canadian female in the Hall of Fame, but the second Canadian, and I think now we've had a third Canadian inducted. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. When you think about the size of rugby in the world and to be in the Rugby Hall of Fame as a female, can we talk about a little bit about rugby? Because we talked more about the Olympic stuff at the beginning. But rugby, A, I played rugby, actually. So great. I grew up in a small town where it was so poor, they couldn't afford to have a football team. And so I played rugby. So I'm a huge fan of the sport and I know how hard it can be and the athleticism and that's required. And to do that with Olympics is crazy. But did you play it in high school and then university? And then, cause you talked about the national team earlier. So I'd like to just circle back and kind of pull that out. In Prince Edward Island, where I grew up, it was just high school. It just starts in high school here. So that's grade 10. So grade 10, 11, and 12 in high school. And I, my older sister played and I wanted to play too. And so that was the plan. And in grade nine in junior high school, I completely destroyed my ankle playing basketball just at the end of the season. So the next year I was very hesitant to play rugby. And I actually just did some training with them. But then once they started going outside on the field to do tackling and stuff, I stopped going. And Mr. Turtle, the coach and athletic director and all that stuff, he very strategically pulled me aside and had a, another, there was a substitute teacher who was there. They took me aside and taught me proper tackling, how to make a tackle, how to take a tackle, all of this just in the auxiliary gym with a big, huge crash mat on the floor. They took the time to kind of get those assumptions out of my brain. And yes, it is a very physical sport, but it's not dangerous. Safer than football. Much safer than football. Much safer than American football. And actually now with concussions coming out with, with soccer football, it's the same. There are, yes, there are random injuries that happen. And I destroyed my ankle playing rugby years later again and, you know, hurt my back playing rugby and, and that sort of thing. But those things are just 
they're going to have like uh, we I played in a rugby tournament and I try to explain this to some parents who have kind of, you know, are concerned. And I said, well, injuries are going to happen, but injuries also are going to happen just walking across the street. So I said, I played in a whole rugby tournament and our team had a barbecue right afterwards. And one of the girls came and showed up there on crutches with a cast on her leg. And I was like, what? Where was I? Like, how did I not know that this happened? Like, I totally thought that I'd missed something on the field. And how oblivious could I be to miss an injury like that? Like, what happened? She's like, oh, I wish I could say it happened playing rugby. And I am going to tell everyone else it happened playing rugby. But I actually just tripped on the curb in the parking lot going. And so she completely rolled her ankle. So it was kind of this really funny I mean, not so funny for her at the time, but it was a funny thing being like, we just played, you lasted, you survived an entire rugby tournament with no injuries. And then you just walked to the parking lot and completely destroyed your ankle. So sometimes when I tell that to parents, they're like, okay, I get it. You know, and there are some random injuries that do happen, but I've probably been injured more playing basketball than I have playing rugby, you know, that sort of thing. So I think we just have a misconception and some assumptions because it is such a physical game. But the more you learn the rules of the game, the more you realize that the things that seem so physical are actually so predicted. Like everybody knows what's happening. Everybody knows what's going on. I have so much respect for that sport. And the sport is actually more than a sport. It's actually a community. It's culture all on its own. And it's probably the only sport that I know of that is like that. Where You can go anywhere in the world, find a rugby club and be accepted and pulled in. And it's so inclusive. And it's true. And they'll help you find a job if you need a job, help you find a place to stay for a bit. And like these rugby clubs all around the world are, it's a huge family everywhere you go. I can't say enough about that sport. The good word is community. I love that. So you played in high school, then you went to, did you play for Waterloo? I did, but not my first two years. My first two years, I actually played soccer. So I played on the soccer team the first two years. And then I was asked to play in a tournament because they didn't have enough numbers in for the club team in the summer. So I just went to go play in a tournament with them to fill in numbers. And once I got my hand back on a rugby ball, I couldn't go back to soccer. So I, I called the coach and I said, I love you. And I love the girls. I just, I didn't realize how much I missed rugby. So I went and played rugby and for the last two years of Waterloo and then played on the PEI provincial team the summer before, I guess. So the summer between my third and fourth year. And it was then when I was suddenly scouted and found out we had a national women's rugby team. And so the next summer was a tryout, I guess. It was the first year they were having age, like a U23 team. And now they have U20, U19, U17, whatever. But this was the first time they were ever doing just not the senior women's team. So it was a U23 team. And I was 21 and I played on that team. And we played just a couple games against the States. And that was it. And I moved to Ireland. I played a little bit in Ireland at a club team. And then I moved to Trinidad and I lived in Trinidad for almost three years. And I coached down there and I played a little bit, in, you know, in the sevens tournaments with them. And I helped develop their, like a national women's, like the women's program. I didn't do it alone. There were definitely some, some local people there, local coaches there who played big roles in that. But I kind of got a role as a, I went down there as a disability sports program officer through a program uh, through Commonwealth Games Canada. And then I overlapped and I ended up getting hired as a consultant for Disabled Peoples International. But then I also was hired by the rugby union, the Trinidad and Tobago Rugby Union. And I, as a 
women's rugby coach and development officer. So I was down there for about three years and then moved back to Canada just to do my master's degree. And then halfway through that program was this bobsled recruiter that kind of wouldn't let up. Now he had contacted me four years before and I had said, no, not interested at all. And then he came again and he was like, I can't believe you did this. And I know you're older now, so it'd be a lot harder. And I'm like, oh yeah, good thing to tell a <laughs> redheaded woman. That's a great sales yeah, pitch. Great sales pitch, reverse psychology. So anyway, I just said, fine, just send me the information. So I agreed to do the testing camp. That was it. And then that's when I broke one of the testing records. And all of a sudden I was like, wait a second. I wonder if I can actually learn this new sport and learn it in time to compete and represent my country at the next Olympics in five months. So that's kind of where that challenge started and everything just took a big. Then you started competing in rugby for the national team. So when I first moved back from, for my master's degree, the master's degree started in the fall and I moved back in the spring. And my sister was just like, you should come play club rugby again. And I said, oh, I've only been playing sevens. I don't know if I want to play 15s again. And throw myself on the ground again and like do all these things. I don't know. She goes, Heather, it would be so fun to play again. Like you just got to come. I was like, okay, I'll go play club rugby just because playing with my sister would be fun. So went to the practice, the first practice and the club coach was also the Ontario provincial coach. And he was like, where did you come from? Like usually you would, they would know who's in the programs and the people coming up and through high schools and whatever. And all of a sudden I'm coming out of the blue and he's like, okay, where did you come from? There's like one tryout left for the Ontario team. I expect you both to be there. So my sister and I both went to this tryout. We both made the Ontario team. And there was only one game that summer against Quebec before nationals. So we had Ontario against Quebec and one of the national coaches just happened to be at that game. And all of a sudden I'm getting invited to go to this national training camp, which was immediately following the nationals at the end of the summer. So I went to this camp at the end of the summer and my first tour with the national team was that November in England. So from the spring to November was just playing 15s again with my sister and just, yeah. And I had actually fractured my spine the December just before that. So less than a year after fracturing my spine, I was, I was with the national team. So it was very, very quick. So the next year when bobsledding all of a sudden came out of the woodworks in the summer, I had to go back to my faculty advisor at the university. And I kind of just said, you know what? I know this is a two-year professional program. And you're supposed to do the whole two years together, the same class and everything. But can I get a one-year leave of absence? And he goes, oh, is rugby going to be really busy this year? And I was like, well, I think I'm going away with the national bobsled team. Bobsled. And he was like, wow, where, where? Like, where does this happen? And I'm like, I don't even know. So it was just like this crazy. So I did a one-year leave of absence. I had to apply for it and get approved and and all that stuff. So that was a big shift. Yeah, it was very, very random. Like a lot of things in my life have been very random. But that's also why I like to tell people when they're pursuing goals, just don't pursue it with blinders on. Because you could be missing out on another opportunity that could be even more exciting or take your life in a different direction or whatever. But sometimes people are sometimes so focused that they sometimes miss out on other things that may take their life in a whole new, wonderful direction. So, yeah. Cause we often say a, a, a lot of no's to things. And, and when you were telling the story, it reminded me, have you ever read the book, uh, the surrender experiment by Michael Singer? No, you should read that book and, and people listening 
The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. He wrote two great books. Well, he's probably written more than that, but the two that I've read, The Surrender Experiment, which was this first one, and then Untethered Soul, which is, is an, another fantastic book. But The Surrender Experiment is really about not saying no and being open to what the universe brings to you, which I think is, you know, part of your story, right? It's like, you know, you, it's amazing how you have landed yourself into these places <laughs> by not saying no. It kind of is no. landing in these places. To me, it's a tribute and an example for our listeners, whether you're, you know, again, anywhere in your life, whether you're running your own business or you, you said it very well just a minute ago, you know, we walk around, we don't think we do, but we all walk around with some type of blinders on in some areas of our lives. And it's, you know, always important to have perspective of that, have people around you that might be able to remind you of those, to have a business coach or, or, or a success coach or a personal coach to be able to walk you through and, you know, which you happen to do. So if anybody is looking for a coach, I don't know if you're I love that. It's so funny for- though, because when I'm, it's almost like, that's the name of another book. It should be good, no, bad, no, because I'm often trying to teach my clients and myself, I'm maybe the worst at it to say no to more things, meaning by saying no to some things, it allows you to say yes to something else. And, and that's mostly when, when we're talking about that, I guess we're mostly talking about things that are vying for our time and attention, like these things when it's taking away from the things that we really value and that we really want to do. So it's interesting, like the concept of trying to adopt this, like saying, like letting people down gently and saying no but also not saying no to adventures and experiences and possibilities that like and opportunities that that could present themselves. It's really interesting. Yeah, I frame that in the whole thing of we say yes to too many things that please other people. Yes. Rather than the yes to the things that support us in a way that's substantial and equitable for for our either peace of mind or pr- progress or proactivity or agreed pursuit of our goals or whatever. But because we, it's like, Oh, I can't do that. I'm too busy. Well, what are you busy with? You know, I'm busy, you know, pleasing other people in my life, in my life. So it's, it's, yeah, I, that, I think that's kind of one of the distinctions that I try to use. I think we do need to be open to opportunities and possibilities. And that's another perspective shift too. these mind shifts. So I've kind of gotten into these mind shifts of, teaching people these different little mind shifts to help people kind of either rein them back or get them back on track. And one of them is when we talked about pursuing a goal, people need to realize that when you're pursuing a goal, you're not pursuing a guarantee. There are no guarantees in anything. There are no guarantees in life. There are no guarantees in business. There are no guarantees in government, in sports, in anything. Like there are no guarantees in anything. So when you are setting and pursuing a goal of any kind, you are pursuing the possibilities. You're pursuing the possibilities of what could happen if all these things line up and if you actually go through you know, the dream plan pursue phase and, and make it there. And that's what we're always pursuing. We're pursuing possibilities, the possibility of something incredible happening. And so when people suddenly realize, you know, you're right, there are no guarantees. If you are pursuing a goal where there's a guarantee, then great, but there's no magic happening there. So just great. Just check it off the list. But 
it's pretty powerful when people are like, you know what? There, yeah, especially even in life, there are no guarantees in life. So when you're pursuing something, pursue something because the possibility of achieving this or doing this is so drawing. It's so magnetic and pulling you that it doesn't, then anything else doesn't even matter. Yeah. That's, I mean, I love that perspective. I like the, where that also could leave. Even if you don't achieve the goal, it's where could it have led you? Like in your example, like how did you ever think you were ever going to, was it a goal to go to Trinidad? Probably not. But it ended up leading you there because you were pursuing a goal and then another opportunity came up and it's like, oh, they just stack on top. So I'm curious, is there other, because that one's beautiful. Is there other things inside the perspective kind of category that? Oh, like just little mind shifts? Yeah. So a big one is I'm trying to teach people to live in the how. So this how piece, like again, we're talking about when you set these goals, often we're saying, can I achieve that? Right? Can I achieve that? Yes or no? Right? It becomes this binary thing. And so it's just like, okay, yes, how close can you get? That's a very powerful thing. But can I overcome this? Can I do whatever? If we just throw in the word how, how can I overcome this? Then it's all of a sudden, you're not giving yourself a binary outcome. You're automatically looking for solutions right away. So instead of, can we do this? Because often what you're asking about is something so big that your first inkling is, is like, oh my God, well, that's so big. Like the likelihood is so probably not. So because probably not, we're not going to try. Whereas if you say, how could we do this? Or how can I do this? How can we, how could we achieve this? Like, how could we actually achieve, how could we do this? Then the how piece, it completely flips things and you start brainstorming. It's the gamify piece, right? It's like the, how can I get past this? How can I get to the next level? How can I get around this monster that has killed me the last three times I've come this way. All of a sudden thinking that that's a a pretty powerful mind shift. We already talked about setting your goals as a spectrum, embracing that challenge. We already talked about how close can I get the disempowering the naysayers. The other one is doubt your doubt. So doubting your doubt applies to those assumptions, the assumptions or self-limiting beliefs or whatever. And the main question that people need to hold on to is, are you sure? So that's what we talked about a little bit earlier. Are you sure? really says who those kinds of things like, oh, well, you know, that's impossible. Says who, like who actually said that? And, and are you sure? Are they sure? We need to start questioning those assumptions and our self-limiting beliefs. And so by doubting the first thing that comes to our mind, the first block that comes to our mind, just automatically start doubting our doubt. Then we can start kind of peeling away those pieces and finding out what those steps are to actually make it possible. Can I ask you a question about that? How do you do that? Like, do you do that in a journaling process? Because at some point in time, like, I, I can imagine that process because I, I have a process. It's, it's not exactly those words, but it's like eerily similar. So I love what you're saying here. And for people who are struggling with this, where do you suggest starting the exercising that muscle? Eventually it will come to, you know, an unconscious competence where you're just, you're your mind just goes there and starts asking that question. But I'm curious, like how you teach or coach or how you do it personally, like start that process. Well, as a coach, it is when, when you have a coach, when you, when, or when you're working with someone, whether it's a personal trainer, whether it's a coach, like whatever, whoever you're working with, often that is a person who can be the person catching you in your thoughts, right? Like it it can, until you start realizing and start recognizing your own patterns of self-doubt or assumptions. 
So by having someone else, so even if, if you have a friend or someone you trust, someone who is supportive and, and believes in you and is a, a great cheerleader in your corner, if you get on the bandwagon saying, I need you to call me out on anything that I am, I start questioning or doubting or whatever. And these little simple things, like if you can start catching yourself, then, then it's powerful. Like, you know, just saying, oh my gosh, no, I'm not qualified enough. Wait, am I sure? Like, what if nobody else is even applying? How do I know that I'm not exactly what, maybe I have almost all the criteria and the other is trainable, or maybe I'm just selling myself short, or maybe, you know, all these different things. And it's just, you need to start challenging those, like almost like exposure therapy. You need to start challenging those. Sometimes we get stopped because we're, like we talked about earlier, afraid of rejection. So have you heard of rejection therapy? Mm-hmm. You've heard of retail therapy. Well, this is different. This is, <laughs> this is rejection therapy. I did not invent this, but it's so awesome. There were these two guys who started a business, did a startup, and it was a huge hit, huge success. But they basically said that this was probably the 40th one they had tried. Like they had tried and whatever, they tried to get financing, they got shut down, they got whatever, blah, 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 all this stuff anyway. So they said that finally they got to a point where they got this really great product and really great business but they didn't want to lose their edge. They didn't want to play things, start playing things safe. They still wanted to try different things and feel safe doing it. So they challenged each other. I think it was once a month they would go out and they would each have to get rejected five times. So they would intentionally try and go and get rejected. So they would go take a taxi ride and then ask if they could have it for free, expecting them to say no. And they would go to a bar or something and pick out the, the best, the person they found most attractive. And they would go up and ask that person if they could buy them a drink, expecting them to say no. I've done that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So you're familiar with rejection. I'm familiar with that one from years ago. But some people would not even approach someone, right? So, and they would ask the bartender, you know, can we get a, you know, do we have to pay for our tab? And expecting to say no. What they found was that yeah, most of the people said no, but every once in a while when they were expecting a no, there would be a yes. And so they were just like, so if we don't start taking chances and embracing rejection, we may never actually find the yes, the yes to take things to the next level, the yes to take this next stop. And they also realized that rejection, how we feel about rejection is totally personal. It's how we were interpreting that situation. It's how we're internalizing it. Someone just saying no is just someone saying no. It's no in this moment, in this particular time, a subjective answer by this one particular person. It's not anything necessarily reflective of you as a person, of your intelligence, of your attractiveness, of your whatever. It is just an answer in that moment. So by going and getting rejected and realizing that, okay, we had five no's tonight and the world is still turning. And I still have my best friend here. And I, you know, whatever, like realizing that the world does not fall apart just because someone has said no, empowers you to go and take some more chances and to take some more risks. And me going to bobsledding or trying bobsledding and, and being like, okay, I'm going to try and go to the Olympics in five months. Like, okay, great. I know that regardless of how any of those results turn out, whether it's five months later, whether I've been training for years, whether, whatever it is that my family will always love me, that their 
reaction to me, their love for me, their support for me has nothing to do with an outcome of any sort. It has nothing to do with what I do as a profession. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. But that was made clear, not just at the time of the Olympics, that was made clear all growing up. We didn't only go get ice cream from the dairy bar if we did well in a competition, whether it was a singing competition, whether it was at the music festival, whether it was a basketball tournament, support and love or affection or whatever was not contingent on a result ever. Someone's like, did they used to get like, were they big sports parents? Did you ever get like negative feedback from them? And I said, uh, yeah, I got negative feedback from them, but it had nothing to do with sports. They're like, what do you mean? I said, well, if my mom was picking me up from a soccer practice or a rugby practice, and so she was sitting in the parking lot watching the last five, 10 minutes of the game. Yeah, she would sometimes scold me when I got back into the car, but it had nothing to do with my technique or me missing shots on the net or anything like that. It most likely had to do with the fact that I was talking to my friends while the coach was trying to explain a drill because I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't being respectful of the coach. She was not raising an athlete. She was raising a human whom she hoped would be a great contributor to society. She was instilling the values that she wanted you, she thought were important. Exactly. She was raising a human being, a person. She was raising my character. She was creating my character, not an athlete. That's not who she was raising. And she made it very clear. My very first bobsled race, the very first World Cup race just happened to be in Canada, in Calgary. And they were like, great, we're going to come. And of course, it's five months for the Olympics. So they had to buy tickets for the Olympics without even knowing if I was going to qualify. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was thinking that would be so much pressure. And they're like, well, we're going to come out to Calgary and we're going to get these. I said, mom, I don't even know if I'm going to be racing in Calgary. I'm literally have never done a race before. I won't even know until probably the day before, maybe two days before, if I'm even going to race. Like I might trip. (laughs) Yeah. I have no, like, I don't even know if I'm racing. And she said, Heather, you should know by now, we're not going to watch you. We're going to support you. Yeah. That's a big distinction. And that is a big, that's cool. Big distinction. I want to interview your mom on this podcast. Oh my God. Amazing. I've learned all my accountability from her. It's uh, pretty remarkable. Both my parents, in terms of a moral compass, mine is grounded in, in them. It's pretty, it's pretty powerful. It's like an unwavering integrity and the values that they have are absolutely incredible. But that comment in and of itself, like I've shared that with a significant number of people, mostly with parents. It's just like, if you want your child to feel supported, then you will go, even if they're riding the pine and sitting on the bench, you will go and you'll support them and you'll cheer for the team and you'll be happy because he is found something that he's a part of, that he's part of this group, part of a community. And every child, every person is part of whatever they're part of for different reasons. For some of it is, yes, they want to play. They want to be great. They want to go play college ball or go to the next level or whatever. But some of them are just so excited to be part of a team that it does not matter whether they even step on the court or not. So it shouldn't matter to the parents. And to me, that is very powerful if after the, the game, whether they get a minute on the court or not, being like, wow, that was a really great game. What was your favorite part? What was the best play that you saw out there? Or it's not always about why do you think your coach didn't put you on the, on the court? Well, it, that, that shouldn't, shouldn't matter. You know, if your kid is happy and he will be happy, he or she will be happy, they will be happy as long as they know that a parent's love or support is not contingent on performance or on an outcome. And I think that's really, really important. I love that. I love that. I also love the piece about the rejection. I think that was a really interesting tip. You know, the one thing I 
wanted to circle back and add on that was, you know, rejection or no's only hold the power that you allow it to. Yes, exactly. And you've got to be conscious of that. And it's, I was actually thinking about it going, hmm, I might have uh, our sales teams in our company to go out and get rejected. It's a great exercise. It's great. It's how you internalize it. I wanted to just just touch back briefly on like this, like seizing your potential. And I know that kind of started in the book. I think actually, weirdly enough, well, that, I read it on my iPad. So it was page 72 on my iPad, but I don't know why I remember that page, but, but I think it was kind of, it was, I think it was, it was interesting. It was a significant statement because, you know, so many people are unable to, they get blocked at seizing their potential. Yeah. And I just was, I'd be curious just through your experiences, if you could lightly touch on, you know, what was the kind of biggest thing that really helped you shape or, or, and, or seize your potential? Well, I think that part of it is believing in the possibilities is first step. Like you need to see that something is, is actually possible, not guaranteed, but possible in order for you to actually even pursue something. If you think it's impossible, and or if you don't embrace the challenge of seeing how close you can get, then nobody's starting. It's a, it's a it's a no go. So my sister, when I first started bobsledding, she sent me a card, physical, tangible, like old like a card, and it said, "When nothing is sure, and then you open it, everything is still possible." So meaning, when when it has if it hasn't happened yet, there are still possibilities. There's still there's still room. There's still like so until you have raced, or until that team is selected, or until you know, the final run is done, it is still possible. Whatever that is that you want is still a possibility out there because it's not, it hasn't happened yet. So for me, that, that held a lot of weight. And the other component of that is that I almost didn't do bobsledding, partly because of the lifting weights factor and partly the fact of having to wear full spandex in front of millions of people. <laughs> that might not seem like a big deal to you, but for me, everybody Google uh, Heather Moise in Spanish. Oh God, <laughs> it was it was almost a deal breaker. I grew up in a time when it was trendy to wear your dad's baggiest sweaters to school. So, like the idea of wearing full spandex was actually mortifying for me. Like I felt so exposed. It was just so weird for me. And the other piece was when I found out I made the team and that we would be on tour, like North America and Europe, all winter. And that the teams generally trains together, like in little pods, but trains together on, on tour. I basically told my sister that I said, I don't know if I should go because they'll know I don't lift weights. And I don't know if I can get away with that when we're on tour. And she's like, well, then lift weights. And I said, but Heidi, I just like, and she knew it was a big, it was a big vanity thing for me because I grew up very muscular. and. People ask me all the time if I lifted weights already, and I didn't. I mean, like I said, I, was, I grew up when it was trendy to wear your baggy, dad's baggy sweaters to school, but I also grew up before CrossFit was a thing, before going to the gym was actually pop, like was a trend, was popular, was where health was even recognized as being a good positive. It was the only people who went to the gym would have been probably only some of the football teams, right, at university. The, the people where you're just like, okay, they're just pumping iron or whatever, just this handful of people who, guys generally who'd be in the gym. So it wasn't this lifestyle thing. And so I was very paranoid about how muscular I was naturally. 
And I was so worried about what the gym would do. I didn't, you know, there's a lot of ignorance there. There was a lot of unknowns. And, and at university, I would be handed a weight program. You know, you just do your practice with the team and then give you a weight program. And I would just, you know, go put it in the recycling bin or the garbage bin or whatever. And just no coaches questioned me because it looked like I was lifting. Nobody was going to question whether I was lifting or not. So I got away with it. And I think I avoided it so much just because I was so paranoid about how muscular I was. So of course, put that muscular body in spandex was really disconcerting to me. And then also going on tour where the team would be lifting together. So my sister just said, Heather, get over yourself. I'm pretty sure that's a direct quote. Uh, Get over yourself. You don't want to just miss out on making the Olympic team or just miss out on a medal or just, just miss out on something. And then realize that vanity is what stopped you from getting there and just lifting weights. She goes, it's just five months, just lift for five months. And I was like, okay. For me, it came down to no regrets and having no regrets in hindsight. And to me that evolved. And so I had this little philosophy, no regrets equals no excuses, like absolutely no excuses. And so I kind of held on to this, you know, before you asked me, did I, did I have that from the beginning or like those other things we were talking about, or did I develop them through? And that whole thing, how close, just seeing how close can I get and disempowering the naysayers that came later. But this no regrets philosophy, I adopted at the very start of bobsledding. And I was like, I'm going to do everything that I can so that there's so many things that are out of my control. I mean, it's, I have a teammate who's also pushing and driving and the, like all of these things, there are so many things out of my control. The only real true goal that I can set is to be able to stand at the starting line at the top of the bobsled track at the winter Olympic games and just stand there knowing that I have done everything I can to be the best that I can be at that moment. And that's the only way that I could be at peace with any result because otherwise If I have that seed of doubt, thinking about a weekend when I went to a cottage because it was May 2 for a weekend instead of training because I'm like, oh, it's just one weekend. If I have anything that's going to haunt my brain, it's going to haunt me forever if I just miss out on that. So missing out on that medal by five hundredths of a second in my very first Olympics, I have to acknowledge it's a team sport. I don't have control over everything, but I can at least know that at that moment, we broke start records and we set start records for the all four, four runs. And I can, I can look back knowing that I did everything that I could. And I was at the best that I could be at that moment. So it's just, you, you don't have control over some of the results, but you can control the fact that you don't have any regrets and regrets is usually the thing that pains us. Not so much the results. I love that. I love that. I'm curious, just as a side note, did after the five months of lifting weights, was it as bad as you thought? Not necessarily. It's hard when you're in a sport where the intention, like you are training to put on weight. They've adjusted some of the weight limits and restrictions and parameters around bobsledding a few years ago. So I don't even really, I'm not totally up on them. But when I was there, the heavier you were, the better, because you could take some weight out of the sled. So you're pushing a lighter sled at the beginning. So for me, everyone thought based on my appearance that I was probably 135 pounds. Like I'm 5'10". They're like, oh my God, you need to put on so much weight. You're such a lightweight, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I'm 153 pounds. So that's, that was the weight I was playing rugby and just being, you know, whatever. And so I looked to be smaller than my 153 pounds, but that's because muscle weighs more than fat and it was very dense. And so that was great. 
but I'd never lifted weights before. And over that five months, I gained 11 pounds and I lost a couple percentage of body fat, which I really didn't know that I had at the time, but it was a pretty dramatic five months. Yeah. And then it, it kind of dropped down a little bit, never back fully. And then a few, like when I went back to Vancouver, I, again, you know, so, so 153, I would have been to 164. And then for Vancouver, I was probably back up mid 160s. But then after I didn't quite drop, you know, you didn't quite drop off as much. I might've dropped maybe back to 160. And then when I went back to Sochi again, building that up, I was probably 168, 169-ish for race weight and then dropped down a little bit. And so it's every Olympics, the baseline bar kind of kept elevating a little bit. The nice part is for you is muscularity is now in vogue and it's... It's true. I have moments. I have moments where I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm okay. And then I still, but you battle with those, like we talked about those, those voices, those self-limiting beliefs, those stories that we tell ourselves when we're kids. And we all have those internal voices that we have to have little conversations with every once in a while and kind of pull back and put back in its place. This conversation has been amazing. And I would love to have you back. You've given me a really interesting idea in this podcast of having a female panel. Yeah, I think that'd be great. And I would love to talk about, and just what you were alluding to here is, you know, there's that, what you have to go through as a woman in business, in sport, in, you know, in all areas, the pressure and, and the voices and the, you know, I know my wife and I have talked about like the voices that women have are much different than, than what men would have. And I would love to have you back and talk about that. I'd love to have you back and talk a little bit about this. I mean, you're a beautiful soul and you just have this egoless, you know, approach to things and it's real genuine. It's extremely special. You've got an amazing story and amazing results. And how can people find you if they, they want to seek you out? Yeah, if they want to seek me out, I'm pretty easy to find. HeatherMoyce.com is my website. Heather Moise is my handle on pretty much everything in Facebook and Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, same thing. So I'm kind of available on those sites. If people are, are interested in the book, they can just go to my website, heathermoise.com, and you can get links to Audible if people prefer audiobooks. The hardcover, they can just buy through my website and I can sign it before sending it out. If they want a soft cover, then they can go through Amazon. If they want the eBooks, like it's all there. I'm pretty accessible. If people forget my last name, it's pretty easy to just Google Heather Canadian bobsledder or Heather Canadian rugby. It generally pops up. So no excuses. Yeah, you're easy to find. I'm pretty no easy question to find. About it. And, and we'll have all your links in the, in the bio and all that kind of stuff. So, and Moise is spelled M-O-Y-S-E. So Heather, I sincerely am so grateful that you came on the show. I hope you'll come back. I hope actually what I'd love to do is get you next time you're in Ontario get you up to the house and we'll do an in-studio, uh, maybe look to potentially have a panel if it's oh, that would be great. potentially so. If you want to do something cool and unique like that, we'd love to do it. That would be awesome. There's so much we didn't even touch on. There's so much. Huh. We're going to get you back. We've been two hours. Yeah, we have uh, been. We'll shut it down at this. Love what you're doing. Just think the world of you. God bless you, girl. Thank you. Keep keep making a difference. You're doing you're making a difference. And and I hope the people who are listening to this, like, get your kids, get your young young children, uh, especially women listening to Heather, because there's a lot here and there's a lot in her book and and it's really, really powerful. So 
You're just the sweetest. Thank you. Appreciate you. Till next time. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you being with us. If you found value in the show and know a friend or a coworker who could benefit from the conversation, please share the link via text or on social media. Remember, each share creates a ripple effect of knowledge and inspiration. We'll see you next week. The views, information, or opinions expressed by guests during the Business of Doing Business podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Dwayne Kerrigan and his affiliates. Dwayne Kerrigan or the Business of Doing Business podcast is not responsible for and does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. Listeners are advised to consult with a qualified professional or specialist before making any decisions based on the content of this podcast.